The CNBC app, global market news in one place. Customizable sections and personalized alerts. Stocks tracking, interactive charts and market insights all in your hands. Stay connected, stay informed. Download the CNBC app today. Hello and welcome to Sport Box. Here are your headlines today. Turkey drops its opposition to Finland and Sweden joining NATO, paving the way for the Nordic nation's accession to the Defence Alliance. Secretary-General Jens Stoltenberg tells CNBC exclusively the move is globally significant. The decisions by Finland and Sweden to apply for membership, uh, they are historic. And uh, that will strengthen the security of Finland and Sweden, um, of NATO, and, and, and be important for the whole transatlantic alliance. G7 leaders pledged to maintain sanctions for as long as necessary in a bid to cut off key Russian revenues. French President Emmanuel Macron tells CNBC in his closing press conference that the concept of an oil price cap is still a work in progress. This mechanism does not exist as such, so this is just the beginning of the discussion. In the meantime, we can make sure that Russia doesn't make more money because what is happening is that the oil price surge helps finance and fund the war in Ukraine. The problem is Russian oil does not come in just one form. ECB chief economist Philip Lane tells CNBC exclusively the central bank is on track for a 25 basis point rate hike next month and a potentially larger move after that. We have to recognize in a world of uncertainty that we, we will have to be agile, that if some of the clear risk factors do materialize or if those risk factors go up, uh, we, we will have to uh, uh, be more uh, decisive and to move rates more quickly. We'll have much more from the Sintra Central Bank Forum today, including a sit-down with Cleveland Fed President Loretta Mester at 9.30 CET. And U.S. stocks see their worst day in two weeks as consumer confidence hits its lowest level in almost a decade, with Wall Street barreling towards its worst first half since 1970. Big geopolitical developments today as Turkey has lifted its veto on Finland and Sweden's bid to join NATO, paving the way for the two countries to become the newest members of the military alliance. Leaders of the three nations held talks in Madrid, where the NATO summit is currently underway, and agreed to protect each other's security. And let's get out to Hadley for more. Hadley, we can see the regional significance as we talk about the 1,300-kilometre border that Finland shares with Russia. But just talk to the global significance here of having Finland and Sweden now invited to uh, join the alliance. Karen, it was a historic day and, frankly, a historic win for Jen Stoltenberg, the NATO Secretary General. A major uh, basic kudos to him, I think, across the board for making this deal happen. Because you'll remember a month ago when I spoke to him, he said he thought he could get it done before Madrid. Even yesterday when I spoke with him in that exclusive interview, just hours before they clinched a deal on a handshake, frankly, with President Erdogan, he still wasn't sure he wasn't going he was going to be able to get this done. He managed to ha make it happen. And frankly, um, as we were discussing in the last show in Capital Connection, Fred Kemp was on with me. He was saying, listen, I think that President Erdogan really held the stage up until the very last moment here. It's a significant move for him as well. Listen in to what the Secretary General had to say to me yesterday. The decisions by Finland and Sweden to apply for membership, uh, they are historic. And 
that will strengthen the security of Finland and Sweden, um, of NATO, and, and, and be important for the whole transatlantic uh, alliance. <clears throat> At the same time, uh, we need to ensure that uh, when new allies or new countries join the alliance, uh, we have to take into account the security interests of all allies. And Turkey has expressed some serious concerns um, um, on issues like uh, terrorism. And um, we all know that no NATO ally has suffered more terrorist attacks than uh, Turkey. Um, thousands of people have been killed. Uh, and, uh, and PKK and other groups, um, they are responsible for these terrorist attacks. And PKK is a terrorist organization. Um, that is something which is also not only many NATO allies proscribe PKK as a terrorist organization, but the European Union, Finland and Sweden. So, of course, to sit down then and discuss with Turkey how can we step up, do more together in uh, fighting terrorism, which is an essential, which is a threat to our security, uh, is an issue that is absolutely legitimate and important as part of the um, uh, accession process uh, we now uh, and dialogue we now have with Finland and Sweden. So on the face of it, this is Sweden and Finland joining the NATO alliance, right, which is a significant change uh, to the numbers. It beefs up security, frankly, um, for NATO members as a whole. And it also, of course, calls into question Vladimir Putin's initial reason, supposedly, for invading Ukraine, which was that the NATO alliance was infringing or infringing on his territory. And now that they've added an entirely <laughs> new set of borders uh, to the alliance, how much more will this bait the bear, if you will? But taking a step back, I just want to point out some of the significant things that happened in the last 24 hours or so. We now know that uh, President Erdogan got a call from Joe Biden, from the White House, essentially, uh, urging him to make this deal. We also know that they're going to be meeting later today on the sidelines of this summit in Madrid. He hasn't actually met uh, with the president in, in a political forum so far in his presidency. That's a major coup for Mr. Erdogan. And even the language there from the Secretary General of NATO essentially is not calling this country Turkey anymore, calling it Turkia. He's very, very careful to do that. And I think that that just shows the weight with which Mr. Erdogan's been throwing uh, his power around in the last several days as they were working very hard to get this deal done for Sweden and Finland and, frankly, for the alliance. I want to take a step back, though, and mention another conversation that I had on the sidelines of this forum. Of course, that was the foreign minister of Germany, Annalena Baerbock. I asked her specifically about the NATO alliance. I asked about climate change, security, as well as what energy as a weapon uh, is, has changed in terms of their outlook for what's going to happen next here. Listen to what she told me. I thought this was very interesting. We are faced now in Germany with the question if there's no gas coming through Nord Stream 1. Um, I mean, we are discussing, uh, my colleague Robert Habeck, uh, Minister for Economy and uh, Climate, he has uh, announced our second alarm uh, step. Uh, the third one would be that we have to decide uh, which uh, institution or actor in society can be cut off uh, the grid. I mean, we are in a time of war. Ukraine is in a time of war that people are dying, but we are in a hybrid, hybrid war uh, where the war is also being done by, by energy. Germany's foreign minister there not holding back at all, guys, essentially saying, you know, we are in a time of war. This is a, a war footing, if you will. And changing our energy uh, resources and, and the way that we consume energy is all part of this narrative. You know, we are on a war footing. We should be acting like we are. Our citizens have to understand that all of these things that we're doing, supporting Ukraine and trying to keep the alliance strong, do come at a price. And energy cost is part of that. Guys?
Hadley, can I just pick up on the point around Turkey here and the posturing by Erdogan? Because we know that in some of these negotiations, it can be smoke and mirrors. And this was uh, really branded as somewhat of a, a win for Erdogan on the back of fighting terrorism and uh, pushing back against the Kurdistan Workers' Party. But what about some of the other demands on the backdrop around trying to upgrade the fleet for Turkey? There was a, a bit of tension between the Greeks and the Turks about uh, the pace of change here, that if Turkey wasn't allowed to acquire certain aircraft, the F-16, from the Americans, then perhaps by the end of the decade, the Greeks would be militarily superior in that aspect. Uh, so just talk to some of those tensions, perhaps on the southern flank. Absolutely. They're, the politics there are never very far away from, from the surface, if you will. They're always bubbling those tensions. And part of this, obviously, is the fact that uh, President Erdogan uh, wanted to make a statement here. This is a man that's been in power for over a decade, and he's had many conversations with various administrations. He was on a, a pretty good footing, if you'll remember, with the former U.S. President Donald Trump. He's struggled to find that kind of footing with the White House under the current administration. And he's essentially been holding up this Sweden and Finland um, a membership of the alliance, um, in part, of course, because of the terrorism concerns, which are very real. But at the same point, there are a lot of politics at play here. You mentioned weapons. We understand he had that conversation with Joe Biden, no doubt about it. That moved forward um, some of the concerns and some of the demands that Turkey's been making for those F-16s, for those weapons systems. But we also have to remember that this has a bigger impact, frankly, not just on European security, but the conversations that he then in turn will have with President Putin, because he does have a working relationship with the president. You have to remember that this was a country, Turkey, that held the first talks between the Ukrainian foreign minister and the foreign minister of Russia, Sergei Lavrov. Those talks didn't go anywhere so far, but they are the main conduit. Even still, when I speak to the Ukrainian foreign minister, which I do on a regular basis, he still believes that Turkey is still a conduit with which they can potentially have a conversation with the Russians. So they do hold a very significant place in NATO. They have been able to throw their weight around, frankly, over the last several months during this conflict between Russia and Ukraine. And I think you're going to see that continue. And one of the things, of course, that uh, this gives the president of Turkey is, is more leverage within the alliance. Hadley, um, your analysis is so helpful as always. I look forward to more conversations throughout the program. Now, it's not just the NATO summit in focus this week, but the G7. The G7 has issued their communique following days of talks in Germany with leaders vowing to stabilize the global economy and tackle the rising cost of living. On Russia, the group said it would continue to impose, quote, severe and enduring costs on the Kremlin to help bring an end to the war, as well as take immediate action to secure energy supply. G7 leaders also agreed to explore imposing a ban on transporting Russian oil that has been sold above a certain price. The group had productive discussions with China and India about this plan. That's according to a source speaking with Reuters. Steve asked French President Emmanuel Macron at his closing press conference if the G7 was even capable of imposing the new measure. This mechanism does not exist as such, so this is just the beginning of the discussion. I'm in favor of this. Yes, I think it's a very good idea. We have this idea to impose sanctions and face out up to 80 to 90 percent of Russia oil by the end of the year. Some European countries really rely on Russian oil, so if in the meantime we can make sure that Russia doesn't make more money because what is happening is that the oil price surge helps finance and fund the war in Ukraine. The problem is Russian oil does not come in just one form. You have crude and different types of oil products being processed by different countries. So if we want the system to work, we need to expand the alliance of buyers so all the buyers should commit together. 
Steve also posed a question at Italian Prime Minister Mario Draghi's media briefing asking how far Europe is from being prepared for a full shutoff of Russian gas supplies. This time of the year, last year our dependence from Russian gas was 40% of total imports. Today is 25%. Uh, second, we stepped up with the actual implementation of investments in renewables. And in the first six months of this year, we've actually connected, in other words, they actually produce energy and this energy gets distributed. So it's not a plan, it's a, it's a fact. We connected six times, I'm sorry, three times what's been done in the last four or five years. Yeah. For more on inflation and the global economic recovery, we've got a top suite of guests from the Sintra Central Bank Forum today. Annette will speak exclusively to the Fed's Loretta Mester, as well as ECB governing council members Robert Holtzman, Mario Centeno, and Konstantinos Herodutu. Also joining the show, BAS General Manager Augustine Karstens. That's a first on CNBC interview coming up at 1045 CET. Coming up, we're going to talk markets as U.S. stocks see their worst day in two weeks as consumer confidence hits its lowest level in almost a decade. Ambition to me is about doing better. I think ambition creates a pathway. The best advice I can give someone starting off a career is don't have a career, have lots of careers, try loads of different things. Talk to people and put your ambition out there. I don't feel that I've hit peak ambition because it's a learning journey. CNBC is where ambition meets opportunity. What does living ambitiously mean to you? Hear from our CNBC anchors, reporters and global business leaders on CNBC.com. Welcome back to Squawk Box, everybody. U.S. consumer confidence has sunk to its lowest level since February last year, according to a conference board survey, with expectations for the next six months falling to their lowest level since March 2013. This has consumers grow more pessimistic about the economic outlook toward the second half of the year and beyond, with 12-month inflation expectations coming in at 8%, their highest in 35 years. Now, this report got a ton of attention yesterday and seems to be what drove U.S. stocks lower. It was a downbeat session. The Nasdaq bearing the brunt of the selling down nearly 3%. The S&P 500 pulled back about 2% and the Dow Jones lost more than uh, 400 points. So clearly this uh, consumer confidence survey has triggered concerns around the state of the U.S. consumer, which is, of course, extremely important to the overall U.S. economy. Turning to fixed income markets, I'll take a look at how treasuries stand right now. We've got yields lower this morning. Uh, for the 10-year, we're trading around 3.14% or so over the two-year. This spread that we watched very closely, of course, the two-year trading at just over 3%. Dollar crosses. Let's take a look at currencies and how we're faring right now. We've got uh, sterling trading on the front foot versus the dollar. We're up about 13 basis points. Euro, meanwhile, trading on the back foot with investors keeping a very close eye on Sintra with the ECB holding its a key policy forum this week. Uh, Euro trading about 10 basis points lower to 105.08. The dollar also uh, holding flat, essentially, versus the Japanese yen. 
Turning to commodities, let's take a look at where things stand in terms of oil markets. We've got Brent and WTI trading slightly lower this morning, but overall fairly stable compared to some of the moves we've seen recently. Brent, $117 a barrel. WTI, around $111 a barrel. Gold, essentially holding steady this morning. Asian markets, we are trading it down in the Asian session right now. Shanghai Composite down about nine-tenths of a percent. The Hang Seng following Wall Street lower to the tune of about 1.7 percent. The Nikkei 225 also taking a hit overnight down about 1 percent. Let's see what's in store for the Wall Street Open at this stage. We've got green on the board, but fairly muted gains in comparison to the losses that we saw yesterday. So I would say more stabilization rather than a rebound as investors continue to digest yesterday's consumer confidence data and what it means for the prospects of a potential recession. Karen. Juliana, with the Nasdaq firmly still in bear market territory, it's not been the easiest window for a lot of big tech investors. An ARK Invest founder, CEO Kathy Wood, told our U.S. colleagues she underestimated inflation and that she believes the U.S. is already in recession. Inflation has been a bigger problem, but I think uh, that it has set us up for deflation. Uh, I, I've been listening to your program. I heard Ken Langone talk about being in recession now. Jeremy Siegel, same. We think we're in a recession. A really big problem out there is inventories, the likes of the, the increase uh, of which I've never seen this large in my career. And I've been around for 45 years. Uh, and we're talking about the best managed companies in the world. If you're talking about Walmart and Target, they know how to manage supply chains. So if they have problems. But New York Fed President John Williams also told CNBC he doesn't see a major downturn on the horizon. The recession is not my base case right now. I think the economy is, is strong. I, you know, clearly uh, financial conditions have tightened and we're, I'm expecting uh, growth to slow this year quite a bit uh, relative to what we had last year and actually um, you know, slowed to probably one to one and a half percent GDP growth for the year. But that's not a recession. It's a slowdown that we need to see in the economy. UBS says the U.S. is poised to enter a period of, quote, slowflation. You can read more about its economic forecast and how to best position your portfolio on our premium service, CNBC Pro. David Ballin joins us now, the CIO at City Global Wealth. David, thank you so much for joining us. Let me just get into uh, what we've seen in the first half, uh, one of the worst performances uh, since the 1970s, uh, this real reset and thinking around inflation, a potential recession. Just give us a sense as to how that sets us up now for the second half. Well, we've had an enormous switch in expectations, right? We've had interest rates have gone up substantially from being accommodative last November now to being extremely tight with raises that are larger than we've ever seen. We're dealing with inflation that is different than we've seen before, too, because the nature of this inflation is largely exogenous or external. Wheat prices, energy prices, rare metals prices, all affected by the war in Ukraine. And we also are seeing you know, the net effect of what has been a pandemic that is now at an end, which is this oversupply. And so all of that's taking place, but the consumer is bearing the brunt of it, is feeling awful, even as employment levels are extremely high and the labor market stays tight. So when we talk about the idea of recession, what we have to see is that consumer demand would lead to people to actually lose their jobs. And if they begin to lose their jobs, we're gonna see a slowing of the economy, which could lead to a recession. But again, that is not definitively going to happen because that assumes that policymakers continue to tighten until such time as they're going to force uh, you know, unemployment higher. And that right now is not necessarily our base case. 
David, I take your point about the level of uncertainty around the policymaking at this point, and even as the data starts to weaken. But what do we make of some of the, the market action we've seen lately, where a lot of investors are trying to judge whether we're now in oversold territory, whether we're forming a base on markets? Do you think there's any uh, cause for optimism that we're you know, getting beyond some of the volatility and forming a base on markets? I think what we have to do is look at all of the historical times that we've been through and actually assess this one. This is one of six times when the bond market and the stock market have both gone down at the same time by more than four and a half percent. And this was the worst performance of the bond market in really the last 50 years. So we begin with that. That's actually what happened in portfolios there. The first thing that comes back are bonds. Bonds actually begin to perform well in this kind of environment. And we've told our clients that bonds are back, that they should be buying high quality intermediate and longer duration bonds because interest rates, when we look back 18 months from now, are more likely than not to be lower than they are today, not higher. And that's important to portfolios. It's a way for them to actually make money on their cash because if they're holding cash in the bank right now, that's losing a great deal of value. But the fact that we think rates are going to be lower 18 months from now is a big deal because it indicates to us, of course, that equities will be rebounding when we look out into the latter part of 2023. In terms of what we have to go through to get there, we need to go through this earnings season because earnings expectations need to come down for the reasons you were discussing. Essentially, there is a lot of inventory, there's low consumer demand, and in that environment, we would actually expect the slowdown to show show up in, in lower profits during certainly the second quarter and potentially the third quarter. But once rates stop going up, and if we do not have the Fed force us into a recession, force us to have lower unemployment, If that does not happen, if the Fed pauses and says, wait a minute, we actually have done enough in in terms of addressing long-term inflation by raising rates to where they are now, that to me would be a signal that equity markets can, can do well. David, it's interesting to hear you call for rates being lower um, because we saw a a, a come down in yields last week. uh, And it seems to be because we saw a reduction in expectations for the terminal rate for the Fed. But I wonder when it comes to that correlation between yields and equity markets, to what extent it matters what's driving down the terminal rate expectations, whether it's because investors think that the, um, the the Fed will be able to bring down inflation and it will subside rather quickly, or it's because they're expecting you know a more severe recession and that's what's going to cause the, the, the Fed to pause. Well, we have to look you know and look honestly at what kind of inflation we've got. If you think about why we have the inflation rates we do, it's because housing costs have gone up, and part of that's due to rates. And- Energy prices have gone up and food prices have gone up. All of those things have gone up, but they've gone up for exogenous reasons. In other words, due to the war and due to the cumulative effect of the pandemic. And so what you have to believe in order for inflation to be under control is that it's not going to come under control tomorrow. It's going to take 12 months. We expect by the end of 2023 for the ambient rate, the background rate of inflation to be three and a half percent. Then that's 18 months from now. And when we think about it, it used to be 2% for the last decade before that. And that's because as we think about the world and you know going out beyond that time, it's going to be a world of higher friction, right? With different trade issues, uh, you, you know, I think different you know, supply issues that are going to have longer term, higher levels of inflation. But it takes a long time to get there. And the Feds only has, and the central banks only have one instrument. And that instrument is a very blunt one to drive all demand down. And the question is whether or not that's good policy. Do we want to attack the kind of inflation we have now by driving all demand down? And I think the answer ultimately will be no, that the Fed will make a decision at some point to stop. 
to allow inflation to abate over time once it sees enough data to suggest that it's moving down. And again, if it does that, and we're looking into you know six months or nine months out, you can imagine what that recovery would look like because the recessionary expectations that people have now would actually begin to fade. David, let's wrap up on the housing market, a, a critical component to, of the U.S. economy. What's your read based on the latest data, and, and what does it reflect about the, the overall economy stateside? Well, we just published a big piece you know, at City on, on housing, and it has two contradictory trends. On the one hand, there is simply not enough housing to meet demand. Both new construction and the supply of housing in the U.S. is actually well under what the actual latent demand is. That's the first thing. And second of all, affordability of housing at these higher interest rates has actually fallen by about a third. It's much more expensive today to, to own property and buy property in the U.S. So we're going to see a major slowdown, but not necessarily prices go down that much. And here's the secret of all of this, right? The creation of household wealth in America in terms of the value of homes and actually where's the stock market is relative to where it was three and four years ago, the creation of that wealth is pretty pretty extraordinary. And the health of the consumer is something that people don't talk about very much on these programs when they talk about recession. In the US, the value of a person's home, the value of their stock portfolio or their savings is actually at a very high rate. Their levels of credit are very modest. As soon as their expectations change and their negativity associated with inflation changes, they're actually going to be very well positioned to carry on in a normal economy. And that's largely because of the fact that their housing prices have actually stayed higher and are likely to do so in the future. And I don't think people really expect uh, the consumer to be as strong and resilient as they can be. And I think that that will ultimately be one of the things that in 2023 begins to carry this market ahead. Thank you for listening to Squawk Box Europe Express. For more market moving news, you can head to cnbc.com. Or join us again on the show with Jeff Cutmore, Steve Sedgwick and Karen Show Weekdays on CNBC.